At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When is 50 yards really 500 yards? Well, when Ron misspeaks on one of his YouTube videos. That and more on this episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the screw up. <laughs> Me. I did a video in which I was shooting some 22s, and uh, I wanted to say that it was shooting uh, under minute of angle. Well, no. I wanted to say it was shooting a half-inch group at 50 yards, and I said 500 yards. And boy, did I hear from people on that one. Most of them were pretty good-natured about it. Here's one from DJ. Hi, Ron. First of all, I don't want to be the bad guy, but around minute 5335, you misspoke and said 500 yards in place of 50 yards. You could use this one for the bloopers. Uh, I like your videos, though, so continue the good work. <laughs> That's the kind of good-natured ribbing I've been taking on this one. Now, the next gentleman here, LV, he says, Ron, do you still have clothes on? I see many are stripping you for that 500-yard misspeak thing. <laughs> I would like to see their perfect videos. I actually wrote back to LV and I said, yeah, I'm getting cold sitting here in my underwear. <laughs> All right, let's move on from that one. Let's see. Sean. Sean says, Ron, a great process here with a new shooter. Oh, this is in reference to a video I did training uh, young Chase how to shoot better. He was a, a new hunter and shooter and he had never really shot much past 200 yards so i just kind of went through the basics with him and he was a good student who appreciated some basic instruction you know so many times we like to think we pretty much know it all we don't want to be embarrassed when someone teaches us something thinking we don't know it but chase and i seemed to get along really well and uh, i was able to teach him what i think he needed to know and he appreciated it so it all worked out pretty nicely so this is what Sean is talking about here when he says, Ron, a great process here with a new shooter, but it's confusing on one front. Aren't you mixing maximum point blank range and holdover? With the two and a half inch high zero at 100 yards, you are setting up for max hold right on to get your deer shooting out to about 275 yards. But then you're holding over to hit 300 and 400 yards. If we're going down that path, why not get as any number of scopes with a basic holdover reticle and then zero it at 100 yards to be more precise at all ranges to 400 yards. Good question, Sean, but you see what I am doing here is sort of a hybrid. I'm building on the maximum point blank range. Oh, here's Covey up to see us all. Want to come up and say hi to everybody, Covey? Come on, jump up there. Yeah, there she is. 
You're trying to tell me it's pheasant season, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I know. I tell you what, when I'm done with this, we'll go we'll go chase the pheasant, okay? You go downstairs now and wait by the door. Go out. Go downstairs. <laughs> what a dog. I kind of like that dog. She uh, gets me out of the office. <clears throat> now, where were we? Oh, so, yeah, what I was doing here, Sean, is I set, set up for maximum point blank range. And that means you can shoot at the center of your deer size target out to whatever your maximum trajectory on that bullet is before it drops below the target. I've explained this a thousand times, but I'll do a quick little run again. So with that 308, we were setting it up to aim dead center and then go no higher than three inches, no lower than three inches. And the distance at which the bullet would drop three inches below that target's then you're at your maximum point blank range. And we estimated it was around 275 yards. So what Sean is saying, well, okay, there's your maximum point blank range, but then why are you saying hold higher for your 300 yard shot? Wouldn't you wanna rather be dialing on a turret dialing scope? Well, one with multiple reticles, a ballistic reticle scope, you choose the reticle that matches your shooting distance. Yes, that's exactly right, but you don't have to do it from 100 yards the way uh, Sean here is suggesting. You don't have to zero for 100 and then have to dial for 200, dial for 250, dial for 300, dial for 400. You're dialing too much. The beauty of the maximum point blank range is out to that maximum yeah, like 275 yards. You don't have to worry about dialing anything. So it's really fast. You see a deer, you go, wow, he's out there somewhere between 100 and 300 yards, but he looks more like 250. Uh, I don't have a lot of time to do all this dialing or even select the right reticle. It's just a quick opportunity, but a good one. And if you've got your maximum point blank range set, you can go dead center and get him. But then if you have time and you range him and you say, ooh, he's actually at 300 yards, you know you're going to drop below that three inches and probably shoot under him. So you just have to hold high on his back line and it's going to drop in there if you know your trajectory curve, your inches of drop at those distances. And over pretty much all of my career, I learned this from Jack O'Connor, not personally, but from reading him and several others back in that era. Uh, they all taught the maximum point blank range because we did not have range finders. We didn't know exactly where that animal was. And that's why magnums became so popular because they shot farther and flatter. So you could misjudge the range sometimes by as much as 50 yards and still keep it in what they called the boiler room. And it's worked beautifully for me for all these years. And what I learned over time was that with a 400 yard shot, most of my rifles, I was shooting the 277 rim mag in that category. And I would get uh, sometimes 14 to 18 inches of drop. Well, if the chest of a deer is about 16 to 18 inches, and you know you're dropping that much at 400 yards, if you just show a little daylight over the top, you're going to drop it into the lungs. And that has worked extremely well for me. So what we're doing, Sean, is I would say set up for your maximum point blank range and then dial or select your reticles for farther distances. That way you don't have to be dialing and or choosing reticles at every 50 or 100 yard increments from 100 yards on out. But good point. I think what too many uh, young people, I will say these days with the high tech scopes that we use are just into that dialing and or selecting the reticle and zeroing at 100 yards. I see it all the time out on various ranges. Everybody's zeroing for 100, and then when there's a 200-yard shot, they have to make an adjustment, whereas I just step up there and go bang, 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 and I'm drilling my targets out to 300 yards. But again, that's a deer-sized target. 
16 to 18 inches and you know you you start shooting at tinier targets and obviously you want to be more precise and you can do that with laser rangefinders and knowing your ballistics all right that was a good one sean now, Dan, something about my 22 video. I reviewed some 22 rifles, so maybe that's what he's referencing here. Well, my dad was born in 1923 and raised in central Texas from a poor family. During the Depression, he didn't go to school. He learned to work early, and he hunted and he fished. <laughs> not, not something that too many of us would have minded doing back when we were in grade school. But I'm not sure we'd want to miss out on the education either. Let's continue here. Not for the fun of it, but to eat. He acquired a used Remington single shot, bold action 22 as a young man. I grew up in the 1950s and early 1960s shooting that same gun. The old gun has several notches on the buttstock, one for each of the deer that he killed with that little 22. He used to tell me stories about how many deer, rabbits, squirrels, and other things he'd killed with it. He bypassed me and gave me the gun uh, to my oldest son many years ago before he passed away. My point is this. If you're good enough, a 22 long rifle is good enough. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of uh, woodsmen with that attitude. Uh, still, I don't recommend the 22. Most fish and game departments do not allow it for big game hunting. But we always come up with this little argument about the 22 long rifle killing more deer than anything else. And, and it's probably true from the perspective of this sort of person, the folks who lived through the depression and hard times in general, rural folk. If you want to have a, a rifle, you can afford both the rifle and the ammunition and still be able to get the job done. <laughs> Boy, it's pretty hard to beat that 22 because with the right shot placement, you can do the job. But these days, most of us have more than enough money to afford a more suitable center fire rifle for taking big game. And that is definitely what we recommend. <clears throat> okay, let's see. Tyler says, in reference to the 308 Winchester Week videos that I did on Ron Spomer Outdoors channel. He said, this guy is as goofy as they come. How are people watching this? Well, Tyler, I know how they're watching it. They're getting on their phones and going to YouTube, or they're getting on their computers and they're going to YouTube, and that's how they watch it. But I think what you meant to say was, I am goofy, and how can people stand to watch it? I don't know. You either like me or you don't. Plenty of people think I'm goofy. Other people seem to appreciate what I do. I can't help it. I'm me. I'm not going to pretend to be somebody else. I like to throw a little humor into my presentations, and I like to enjoy myself. And if sometimes I get a little bit goofy, sorry, <laughs> you don't have to watch. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal develop high-quality, technically sound products, and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com this upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, 
Have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Let's see what Neil has to say. This is from uh, the video I did on teaching Chase how to shoot. Like other comments that I've seen, this content is priceless. As a man, a combat veteran in the Navy, I also share the apprehension of shooting long distances. The description of the calculations and the explanations help me to make sense of other content that I have seen. Can I take the class next? I have an LRB M25 wood and steel. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, it's obviously a rifle made out of a wood stock and steel barrel, but I'm not sure what LRB is. Long range, I don't know. Somebody out there tell me here. <laughs> I always get mixed up when all these abbreviations pop up. Maybe do something for the veterans. Lots of laugh. You know, Neil, that would be really great. I'd love to teach a class of veterans or anybody else. I, I enjoy teaching. And I am looking into teaching a class um, at Holland's Long Range Shooting uh, north of, I think he's north of Billings. I haven't been there yet. He's got a new place. He's all tricked out. He's got benches and platforms and he's got a 22 long rifle range. He's got a walk-up range where he trains you to shoot field positions. And then the center fires, I think, go out to a thousand, maybe even farther. Uh, but Daryl really knows his stuff. I've taken his class in the past too. And he said, hey, why don't we do one together? So we're looking into doing it. If anyone is interested in a long-range shooting class in Montana next spring or summer, we don't have anything locked down yet. But if you're interested, let me know. You can write to Ron at ronspomeroutdoors.com, and we'll put you on a list and get you the uh, pertinent information when it becomes available. Yeah, we'd uh, love to have you, Neil. <laughs> Okay, this is Dave, and this looks like it's also about that uh, teaching video with Chase. Okay, Ron, you have an opinion on your partner's unethical hunting prowess? Question mark. I want to hear what you have to say. Next video, 730-yard shots with your student. Oh, ah, I know what Dave is referencing here. This is, hmm, just be a little bit tricky, but <clears throat> I think it does have to be addressed. He's not talking about that teaching class video that I did with Chase, that 730-yard shot is referencing an unethical hunting incident that's all over social media for the last week or so. First of all, you have the wrong person. There are two Von Benedicts. The one who is involved in this incident in Utah is not the one who is doing videos for Ron Spomer Outdoors. That is Joseph Von Benedict. This, uh, down in Utah was Aram Von Benedict, who I have interviewed a couple of times on my podcasts. And he got into a situation with another hunter and her husband in which they were both shooting at the same deer and they were shooting too far. And he said he did that wrong. And he said she did that wrong. And everybody jumped on and they're condemning one side or the other, mostly Aram. And 
I just have issues with a lot of this because it's gotten to be an ugly situation that involves a lot more than unethical or illegal hunting practices. I'm not making judgment calls on that stuff because I wasn't there. And that's one of my complaints about this whole thing. We all seem to want to jump on someone when they're accused of something with minimal evidence, I'm afraid. And I just don't think that's fair. And people are calling him out, calling him names, condemning him. They're writing me and saying that I have to condemn him because I once interviewed him for a podcast or two. Um, and none of that stuff is really fair. Now, whether or not Aram is did wrong things, stole the buck, what I think we all need to do is to slow down and step back and consider what all of this frou-frou-frou on the internet is doing or can do to people. I think it's just all too easy to cancel in this silly cancel culture we have these days with too limited information. And we tend to blow things out of proportion as well. Now, if Mr. Von Benedict is as guilty as many claim he is, I agree that it was unethical behavior. Some say there were a some actual illegal things in there, like not wearing hunting orange, hunter orange, or not tagging the deer on time, or something along those lines. Okay, that's fine. And uh, Fish and Game can investigate and do what they need to do there. And then there's some questions about whether he should have shot at 707, I guess what, 730 yards, as uh, Dave here says. But of course, I don't advocate that. I mean, I talk about long range shooting quite a bit and say it's great to learn it. It's great to do it on targets, but we really probably should not be shooting at game. And is it 400 yards? Is it 600? Is it five? Is it seven? Exactly where is it? And how do you decide? Because there are long range shooters who say and probably could prove it that they can hit their targets at 700 yards more consistently than a lot of hunters can at 200 yards. And it's probably true. I've seen some pretty dismal shooting over the years. When do you condemn somebody? Well, what I come down to is the actual physics of the whole thing. If your bullet takes more than a third of a second to reach the target, that's kind of the cutoff point for me. Because in a third of a second, too many things can go wrong. First, you've got your wind deflection, and it's hard to read the wind exactly right. I have seen long-range, highly skilled shooters misjudge and miss on their first shot badly, sometimes even their second and third shot. And this is not hunting. That's target shooting. That's fine. The other thing is by the time your brain says, okay, there's my shot, pull the trigger, you add to that third of a second a bit. It's not just the flight of the bullet, but I'm going to use the flight of the actual bullet as my determiner. The determinant is one third of a second, and that's usually around 500 yards, maybe six, depending on how fast that bullet's going, what its BC is, and all the rest of it. Much beyond that, though, just imagine that deer standing here, and just when your brain says pull the trigger, he ducks or returns. That can all happen in a split second while the bullet's on the way, and then you end up with a miss or worse, a wounding shot. The other thing is you wound the animal, and now he's stumbling and running around, and you don't get a good second chance. Uh, he's so far away that you can't find him when you hike over there. I've heard from a lot of guys with that issue. He's in the woods over on that side, and you have to go down, and there's a canyon in between you and a creek you can't cross very easily. And by the time you get there, you can't even find the location. And if you find the location and that deer was wounded, he may be long gone, et cetera, et cetera. There's just too many highly unpredictable variables involved in this stuff. So I say third of a second, 500 yards, if that's what it is, okay. 
great. Um, and as far as condemning someone for mistakes that they've made, I really don't think it is up to me to do that. I can certainly make my judgment calls, but I don't know that I need to announce that to the world, nor do I think anyone and everyone else on social media does. I mean, this jumping on and kicking a man while he's down idea, I just don't think it does any of us any favors. You know, it turns into gossip and too many inaccuracies. I, I think you have to have been there to really make an accurate assessment. I think the best thing we can do to come away from all of this is to discuss it and admit humbly that we're not perfect either. No one is. We can all make mistakes. This may have been a bigger mistake than most of us would make or would want to make, but hashing it out and deciding that we are morally superior, therefore we have to condemn everybody involved, I don't think is the right attitude as well. And finally, I think we should all think twice, if not four times, before we put this sort of stuff out on the internet. It doesn't do anyone any favors. I can't imagine either party involved in this is feeling good about the situation. Uh, they probably feel pretty badly about shooting too far and wounding a deer. And they probably feel bad about things that were said about them or the other side. I mean, the whole thing just gets ugly. So I would, I would like it all to go away with all of us taking from it a study in how we should perform ourselves and not be blaming others. It's just a, a cautionary tale for all of us. So thanks for, for being concerned, Dave, and everyone else who's written in about this hunter ethics stuff because it is important that we do conduct ourselves ethically at all times. But at the same time, we're human. And yeah, we've got to cut a little bit of slack for that shortcoming. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And all of us. All right. This is uh, from Shannon. I love your videos and I listen to your podcasts on the regular. Wondering what your thoughts are on using a lead sled. Do you recommend it? And have you ever experienced any damage to your scope or rifle? I just ordered one, and I have heard some people have issues regarding this. Thanks. Keep hunting honest and shooting straight. <laughs> Appreciate that, Shannon. Yes, I've had quite a bit of experience with lead sleds. I find them in a lot of hunting camps. The idea is, for those of you who don't know a lead sled, it's this steel holder for your rifle. It holds the butt of the rifle as well as a yoke up front. So you put it on the bench and it's pretty much rock solid. And it has a flat platform attached to it on which you can put bags of shot or other heavy weights. The idea being is to tame the recoil so that the shooter can set the gun off without wiggling it, without flinching from fear of recoil, etc. But what sometimes happens with heavy recoiling guns, because that buttstock is not against your shoulder that can give, but against this hard surface that doesn't give, the more weight you put on that lead sled, the harder it is to move. And if there's nothing that can get pushed back from the force of the recoil, it will sometimes break the stock of the rifle, usually right at the pistol grip. Where does it happen? I don't know that I've ever seen it with the 30 at 6 level of recoil, but 375 H&H probably. And above that, yeah, I think that's where you start to, to see this damage. 
I'm not crazy about lead sleds myself because obviously you've got this steel plate back here and then a pad in the plate to protect the finish of your stock and everything and you're trying to get in it. It's really not a precise hold. You don't get the kind of cheek weld that I think you consistently would use in the field and just a few other things about it that aren't real comfortable. You can certainly shoot good groups with it because it controls the rifle so well. But I would say use it with caution and uh, don't feel like you have to use it. I would prefer that folks learn to shoot heavier recoiling guns properly and uh, understand that it really doesn't hurt all that much in most cases. Because if a, a guy my size can shoot these 416s and 450s and such, um, I think most of us can learn to do it. I mean, I know five feet tall women who are shooting 338 wind mags regularly and sometimes 458 lots and they live to tell the tale and they get their critters too. So you can learn, anyone can learn to tolerate recoil. Um, I think that's a better option. But if you want to work with a lead sled and you just don't like recoil, just beware that the heavier kickers could break the pistol grip. All right, Hendrick, 222. In the Canadian Arctic, the 222 Remington reigned supreme for decades as a seal rifle and for caribou. However, the Arctic islands are flat as a pancake. A wounded animal is easily run down on a snowmobile. The caribou are of the Perry's race. A 140-pound bull is a serious stud. Man, that is a small caribou. That's even small for a whitetail. The uh, Northwest Territories government sanctions the use of the 222 on caribou only above the tree line. That's pretty far north. Uh, because in brush country with tall waist-high grass and shrubs, it's a different story. Animals that run off for more than 50 yards can be very hard to find. I have seen many caribou shot with all the different 22 center fires. With a proper bullet placement, they kill just as fast as the larger calibers. Quite a few polar bears are killed with the 222 Remington, either headshot at close range or into the heart through the thin skin around the armpit. Oh, this is not exactly allowed, even there. Okay, thanks for that information, Hendrick. Yeah, there's always arguments about whether the uh, 22 center fires are suitable for deer. Um, and then, of course, people will say, well, they've been used to take just about everything in the world and probably everything, short of a blue whale maybe. But elephant, there's, there's a case of some woman who is protecting her garden over in Africa and plinked at an elephant, just happened to hit the artery just right and killed that elephant. So it's out there. I don't recommend everyone go hunting deer with 223s or 222s, but as this gentleman said, with the right bullet in the right place, it certainly does the job. Let's see what the teams come up with here. Daryl from Kentucky. Ron, by now I'm sure you've received this correction from any other rifleman. But if this is the first one, I believe that you mistakenly conflated the 8mm by 57 and the 9.3 by 57. One is loaded with a .366 inch diameter bullet. That's the 9.3 versus a 0.323 bullet, and that's the 8mm JS, the 8x57 German Mauser. Um, the original one had a 0.318 inch diameter bullet, and then they changed it up to a 3.23. From Terminal Ballistics Research's site, that's a good site, by the way. That guy's got a lot of great detail on ballistics. You might want to check that out. The Mauser company built the 9.3x57 rifles based on their well-established Model 98 action for a short period of time, but soon adopted the 9.3x62 chambering, which had received good reports in Africa. Were it not for Swedish hunters interested in the 9.3x57 Mauser for use on native moose, red deer, and boar, the 9.3x57 might, for the most part, be unheard of today. 
I really enjoy all your content on YouTube as well as on your many seasons of articles I've read over many decades of being a rifle loony. Your taste in rifles and scopes runs along the same line as mine. I've been an avid hand loader since the early 70s and currently have die sets for over 50 calibers along with the firearms that shoot them. I'm a retired fire and services captain. Uh, love to fish and hunt since childhood. Hope you keep up the great work for many years to come. Your adventures let me experience vicariously all the hunts I've never been able to experience myself. Thanks, Daryl. Well, that's a nice little uh, newsy letter there, Daryl. <laughs> what it reminds me of is uh, actually my friends and me. You know, we sound like we're about the same era, uh, starting off reloading in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, and dreaming of all the wonderful adventures we've now had since then. But boy, weren't those heady times. We had all of that future in front of us. We wanted to go elk hunting and moose hunting and go to Africa. I am extremely fortunate in having been able to do that. And as you said, I'm not done yet. And I hope you aren't either. And all the rest of you old guys out there, we can still get out and enjoy it. You know, I've at the point where I don't, I don't lust after the big horns and antlers anymore. Obviously, if they show up, wonderful, and I'll, I'll take them. But just being out there and being able to hunt, have that freedom uh, that's intrinsic in the hunter's life, knowing that you can get out and roam the planet uh, the way God intended, I always like to say, the way nature intended when they when the human animal came along, we were, well, we're essentially a hunter-gatherer. And there's just something romantic about that whole notion of the hunter-gatherer tribe out in nature, living off, off of nature successfully, knowing how to conduct themselves the, via woodsmanship and the right animals and plants to harvest and all the rest of it. It's just basic. I think it's it's baked into our DNA. It's just wonderful that we're still able to do that. And, you know, we really need to take a lot of credit for being able to do it. It's the hunters, the conservation hunters going clear back to Teddy Roosevelt and even a few decades before him, that nascent conservationist idea. Hunters are who saved wildlife, a lot of species from extinction, started the national park systems and uh, just the whole program of conservation that restored wildlife in North America was started by and largely funded by, and it's still largely supported by hunters. So bravo for us, eh? <laughs> Pat on the back. We need to understand that and appreciate it and keep up the good work. Sean from Tennessee. I want to plan a do-it-yourself hunt to New Zealand. I think I have most of what I need to make it happen. It is just the lack of my knowledge of the um, area that I'm worried about. What should I do to get good information without having to go on a guided hunt? So Sean from Tennessee needs some help from all you New Zealand hunters. Do it yourself hunt over there. I know it can be done. I've gone over a few times, but I've always had a guide. But it would be fun to just hit those mountains on your own. Be a lot like going to Alaska, Sean, I can tell you that much. You know, big snow-capped mountains and steep deep terrain and big rivers and, and mountain lakes that look a lot like fjords at these long, long, big lakes. It's just beautiful country. Uh, and they, of course, you know what they have for big game over there. It's all introduced and the government's trying to keep the numbers down. They often, every once in a while, they suggest eliminating all of these introduced animals, red stag and and uh, chamois and tar, lots of fun stuff over there. But you should be able to put something together, and I'll bet we'll get a few comments and some help from our New Zealand listeners. we got a lot of folks who, who chime in from New Zealand. I really can't tell you what to do. I, I would guess you could get on the Internet, Google it, 
do-it-yourself hunting in New Zealand, and you'd start popping up some ideas really quickly. And of course, Google Earth is a great way to get started. It should show you the landscapes and the trails and all this good stuff. And there are several good books. Oh, I wish I'd seen this before. I could have pulled out this one I read. There was a guy over there ooh, long ago, like 100 years ago, running up and down the mountains all over this big country getting red stags. There's quite a tradition of red stag hunting there. And it was apparent from that book that there were a lot of trails that you could work your way up to the top of these mountains. You ought to be able to find something fairly quickly and easily, Sean. Just dig into your research. and Good luck. I think you're going to have a blast over there. Thomas from Wisconsin. I was uh, wanting your opinion on the relationship between bullet weight and velocity and possible meat damage. I hear a lot about that. So I have a 6.8 Western and I am shooting the 162 copper bullet from Winchester at 2,800 feet per second. If I loaded a 130 grain Barnes TTSX or 155 grain LRX with more velocity, would more or less meat damage occur if you happen to hit a shoulder? Thanks for your input. Well, Thomas, you know, it's highly variable. In general, copper bullets don't seem to do as much bloodshot meat damage as lead-based bullets because the lead is more prone to breaking up and, and or eroding. The jackets would separate on a cup and core quite often. So you get more particles of these bullet flying around and damaging more tissue. Whereas the Barnes X bullets, the hammer bullets, the cutting edge, the Badlands Precisions, the copper bullets from Winchester and, and Remington and Federal and just all of them, CX bullet from Hornady. Those are all going to stay in one piece or some of them are designed to peel a few petals off and that could do a little more damage but generally it doesn't happen until that bullet's well inside of the animal so it's just going to penetrate lungs and or heart um, and if you hit the shoulder the times that I've hit shoulders with those bullets they generally will punch in and not do too much damage but pff, it's highly variable because if you hit a bone you can send bone chips through the animal and damage meat and a lot of what I think we assume is meat damage from the bullet is really blood damage from the animal running after it's hit. And I, this one really came home to me last year. I was bow hunting with uh, big Kansas whitetails south of Kansas City, and I took a beautiful 160 class buck with a single arrow, shoulder out in the front of the other shoulder, ran off like bow struck, uh, arrow struck bucks do and expired from blood loss. When we skinned that thing, it had bloodshot meat from the front of the shoulder to the back leg. The, I mean, it was what, probably the worst I have ever seen. And obviously, there's no hydro, hydrostatic pressure pushing blood from an arrow. It's not an arrow breaking into pieces and tearing up lots of meat. So it's really not meat damage from the strike. It's from that buck running after I cut arteries and then the blood is flowing through the muscle groups in the meat. And that's what makes it look like, oh my gosh, this is all useless, throw it away. The main point here is it is not. Usually there's not that much meat damage. It's just that the blood has flowed where it shouldn't be and it piles up and it looks bad. You scrape it away and the meat is fine underneath it. So don't be in too big of a hurry to say, oh, this is bloodshot meat, I can't use it. Just scrape off that bloodshot stuff and double check. You usually find that the muscle group underneath it is in perfect condition. But back to your question about which bullet. Yeah, the heavier your bullet, the slower your bullet, the harder your bullet, the less of this damage you're probably going to see. 
Um, and then there's always a compromise. You need enough bullet expansion to kill quickly and efficiently. But then again, you don't want excessive damage. So I tend to go with the copper bullets. Um, and I can't really say that the ones that have the pedals breaking off like the hammers do more damage than the ones that keep the pedals like the barns. But, you know, anything can happen. <laughs> One time you might have 10 perfect Bullet strikes every time, and it's, it's wonderful, no no loss. And the next one, for some strange reason, you've got bloodshot meat. So don't expect a miracle every time. But in general, I think you're on to it there. You just stick with those copper bullets, and you should be fine. Andrew from Massachusetts. I recently, and by recent, I mean today, <laughs> bought a Henry Long Ranger rifle in 6.5 Creedmoor. And I took it to the range. It's a wonderful gun. It's very light, it's handy, and it's accurate, too. I used Winchester open tip target and practice 125 grain rounds. And I got decent groupings with iron sights at 50 yards. It was too foggy to shoot to 100 yards. I also picked up some Winchester PowerPoint 129 grain rounds. When I opened the box, I was a bit surprised by the lead tips of the bullets. They were blunt and bulbous. Some were even slightly bent off center. Very unlike the pointy tips shown in the box. My question is, how much does the shape of the tip of the bullet affect accuracy? Ballistic tip versus open tip versus lead tip. Wow, that's kind of weird. Um, you know, a weird thing happened to me the other day. I opened a box of 308, chambered around, and it went in really hard. And I was about to pull the trigger, and I thought, wait a minute. You know, sometimes a round is just a little bit oversized, and the chamber's a little bit tight. If you can get it in, you're fine. But this, this something didn't seem right. I took that thing out. Guess what it was? Not a 308. It was a 6.5 Creedmoor. How do you get a 6.5 Creedmoor into a box of 308? It's coming off the factories. No, they're not doing 308s and 6.5s on the same run that they would get dropped in there. But what about in the store? Billy Bob goes in and says, hey, here's that 6.5 Creedmoor. You know, that looks about like a, like a 308. Here's a box of 308. Let's compare the two. Then he puts them in the wrong box. Something like that could easily happen. But bulbous pointed bullets and stuff, I'm not getting this. So I don't know exactly which, oh, it's a PowerPoint. Okay, the PowerPoint is Winchester's pretty much typical standard cup and core bullet with an exposed lead tip. That was standard throughout the 20th century. So this is basically a good old-fashioned bullet. They've worked really well with broadside chest shots on deer for many, many, many years, and they still can. Um, but bulbous tips, uh, something's not right there. So you might want to contact Winchester and see if something didn't slip through that shouldn't have happened. Bent off center, all of that suggests that someone got the rejects. You know, when they go down the line, I sure someone is sitting there for quality control saying, oops, something dented this bullet. This one goes into the reject pile. And maybe they got the reject pile box in with the good stuff. I don't know how it exactly works. But definitely look into that. But as far as the question about the bullet tip affecting accuracy, not all that much. A lot of experiments have been done where they've cut off the tip or damaged it. Because back in the days uh, with exposed lead tips, you used to get a lot of battering in recoil. The magazine had cartridges in it. And every time you shot, the one at the bottom mostly got slammed back and forth. And the tips would get flatter and flatter and flatter. They were still accurate enough for hunting, but obviously they're not perfect. That's why they invented the bronze tips and the silver tips and all these harder tips, including the now polymer plastic style tips to prevent that kind of damage. So, you know, it's worth 
paying attention to, but it's not a game killer at hunting distances in most cases. All right, that looks like about all the time we have here. They're giving me the signal. So Ron is going to sign off. I want to thank all of you sending in your questions, your ideas, your suggestions. Looking forward to finding about uh, New Zealand do-it-yourself hunting. Can't wait to get some responses from you New Zealanders on that one. So until next time, this is Ron Spomer, Hunt Honest and Shoot Straight.